Hello. Welcome to the myths and history of Greece and Rome. Before I start today, I'd just like to apologise for not being able to release an episode last week. Normal service has now been resumed, and I hope that I won't have to have any other weeks where I don't release chapters. Also, a number of people have asked me how they can donate to the podcast. If you log on to the website, www.mythandhistory.pickpodbean.com, you'll see a donate button. There you can donate as much or as little as you like. Anything gratefully received. So, here we go. Chapter 68, Two Good Flavians, One Big Bang. The Roman Empire had just suffered its greatest crisis for a hundred years. Fortunately, there were no generals left in the empire who had large enough armies to try to take power. Vespasian had been in the right place at the right time and had timed his intervention to perfection. Rome was tired of chaos and Vespasian's victory in the year of the four emperors was the last internal strife that would befall Rome for nearly 30 years. The crafty old general didn't even have to do his own dirty work. He wasn't in Rome when his supporters' troops arrived in the Eternal City and did away with poor Vitellius. Unfortunately, the army of Antonius took the opportunity to plunder the city. Riots always bring out lowlifes and lots of criminals, looters and opportunists join in. The first few days of Vespasian's reign were not good for the people of Rome. This time, though, there was no will to do anything about it. Everybody had had enough and simply hoped the situation would calm down. Which, of course, it did. The looting and general thuggery ended when Vespasian's colleague, Gaius Licinius Mucianus, arrived in Rome and took charge. He sent the army back to where they had come from and restored order. Antonius retired from his command, probably not entirely willingly. Mucianus placed Vespasian's younger son, Domitian, under his protection, possibly to keep him safe and possibly to stop the young man who probably wanted some power for himself from getting in the way. Some see this as the start of a seething resentment which would manifest itself to the detriment of Rome a few years down the line. This is debatable. Domitian would eventually get the power he craved and his reign is one of the most controversial. Some see him as a tyrant, some as an intelligent and able ruler. But that's for the next chapter. For now, let's concentrate on his father. Vespasian entered Rome in October of 70 AD and quickly began making sure the people thought he was the only man who was meant to be in charge. The Senate granted him the powers to allow him to rule. Vespasian went a step further in official titles than his immediate predecessors had done. As well as calling himself Caesar, he took the titles Imperator and Augustus. But Vespasian wanted support from everyone, not just the leading men. It seems that the new emperor had a gift for propaganda, as soon symbols of his greatness were everywhere. He let it be known there had been a prophecy that foretold his rise to power and didn't stop rumours that he had miraculously cured a blind man and a cripple. His coins contained mighty words that made the people love and respect him. Vespasian is the one who brings you peace. Vespasian is the one who will defeat the enemies of peace. The new emperor had waited to enter Rome so that Mucianus could execute all the enemies of the Flavians, and Vespasian himself would not get the blame. Showing the political ability that Galba particularly had lacked, he presented himself as above the conflict. When he arrived, he showed himself to be a proud, strong, but cheerful, amusing and likeable man, who even took his own boots off in the evening. Always a soldier, Vespasian didn't allow himself to fall into the trap of being pampered. 
Vespasian took a turn as consul in 70 AD with his elder son Titus as his colleague. Titus was made Praetorian prefect and the Praetorian guard, whose loyalty could not be guaranteed, was reconstituted and Vespasianized. Once order was restored, it became clear that Nero had spent all of the gold in Rome and the empire had run out of cash. Vespasian had to find a way of acquiring lots and lots of money and he found some pretty clever but dastardly ways of getting hold of it. He increased taxes, he accepted bribes to decide court cases, he took money in return for giving people important jobs. He bought all of the supplies of rare items and then sold them on for much more than he had paid. He allowed corrupt, bad tax collectors to take money from the people and then pretended he had just discovered what was going on and had them punished. Then he took all of the money. The people began to joke and call these tax collectors Vespasian's sponges because they soaked up gold and then were wrung out by the emperor, leaving the cash clattering on the ground to be collected by his officials. One of Vespasian's best money-making schemes was known as the toilet tax. In Rome, urine was deposited in large cesspools and then sold off for various industrial uses. Vespasian imposed a new tax on these sales. The people were somewhat miffed about this tax and some complained to Vespasian's son Titus. Titus took the complaints to his father, arguing there was something a bit off and generally wrong about using money obtained from taxing human waste. The emperor took the coins Titus had brought along, sniffed them, grinned and said, The money does not stink. This phrase sums up Vespasian's financial policies beautifully. The people forgave Vespasian for his money-making schemes because he put the cash to good use. He rebuilt parts of Rome that had been destroyed in the Great Fire and later Chaos and began work on a magnificent new amphitheatre which still stands in Rome today. We know it as the Colosseum. He didn't live to see it completed and it was opened by Titus in 80 AD. Vespasian also gave financial aid to the people in the provinces whenever a new building or repairs to an old one were required. Most of Vespasian's reign was peaceful. The only major conflict was the Great Jewish Revolt. This had started during the reign of Nero, but had been ignored by the Romans while they were squabbling over who should be the emperor. In 70, though, Vespasian turned his mind back to the problem. When he did turn back to the Jewish Revolt, Vespasian realised it was still a very big problem. There were many attacks on Roman leaders in the province. The emperor decided he couldn't leave the capital himself, so he sent Titus to deal with the rebellion. Titus arrived and found a situation which was growing ever uglier. Not only were the Jewish leaders attacking the Romans, they were also attacking each other. Some just wanted a bit more freedom and were ready to do a deal with the Romans, but some others were determined to make the province independent and would not even talk to the Roman leadership. When Titus turned up outside Jerusalem in late 70 with four legions, he found the city was in utter chaos. Titus was a good and intelligent commander and went about his task efficiently. He cut off the water and the food supplies and laid siege to the city. Having shown this great force that he had at his disposal, he opened negotiations with the Jewish leaders. Unfortunately, the leaders couldn't agree on what they wanted and the talks got nowhere. Titus ran out of patience and decided to attack. Titus was done talking. He sent his army in and they crashed through the outer walls. The defenders ran and found shelter behind the inner walls. These were not enough to keep out the Romans and the city quickly fell into Titus's hands. Titus's men were annoyed the taking of Jerusalem had taken so long and they spent the next few days burning and looting the city. 
Titus commanded them not to destroy the great temple of Jerusalem, but they took no notice and did it anyway. A load of treasures were carried off back to Rome, including the menorah, an ancient seven-branched candlestick, which was a holy item for the Jews. The menorah was carried off back to Rome, where it remained until the Vandals carted it off to Carthage in the 400s. We will see it again and hear this tale later in our story. The putting down of the Jewish revolt is depicted on the famous Arch of Titus, which was built by Titus's brother Domitian a few years later. Titus was given a full triumph when he returned. Vespasian was determined to rule well, but he was just as determined he was not to be the last Flavian emperor. He declared that either my sons shall succeed me or no one. Titus was the elder and clearly preferred heir. He was given proconsular and tribunician powers in 71. Domitian was also honoured but far less than his brother. Titus was a relatively young man and could be expected to rule for many years after his father died and would probably have sons and heirs of his own. Teaching Domitian the skills required to be emperor was probably not a priority. Vespasian had an entirely different approach to the consulship from that of his predecessors. As part of his plans to ensure ongoing Flavian rule, he became consul many times, often with Titus as his colleague. Apart from the Jewish revolt, there were few other external issues for the Romans during Vespasian's reign. There were a few brief revolts in Britannia, but not a lot else. Vespasian, though, never had to go and do any fighting himself. There was nothing serious enough to demand the presence of the emperor. This left Vespasian time to concentrate on and improve the running of the empire. The emperor treated the senate with respect and the execution count dropped very significantly. When he was told that people were talking about plotting, he dismissed the claims as rumours. He joked that you do not kill a dog simply for barking. Vespasian made changes to the way the army was constituted. He left the legions alone, they seemed to be doing well enough, but he changed the way auxiliary troops were managed. Previously, they had been led by their own commanders under the overall authority of a Roman general. This gave unit leaders great insight into Roman tactics and thus how to beat them. The events of the year of the four emperors had shown that emperors could be created far from Rome itself. Independently led auxiliary units were a potential danger to the Roman ruler. Vespasian neutralised this threat while improving the lot of an auxiliary. When they were recruited, they were placed in units under Roman commanders and sent to serve far from their homes. Once an auxiliary had served 25 years, he was given Roman citizenship and a pension. The whole tribal nature of these soldiers changed and the threat was gone. After ruling for nearly 10 years, Vespasian became very ill. He demanded to be helped out of the bed because an emperor should die on his feet. As he was dying, Vespasian was in great pain, but he still managed to joke. Dear me, I must be becoming a god, he quipped before expiring. He was the first emperor to die of natural causes since Tiberius. Vespasian died on the 22nd of June, 79 AD, aged 68. He had, in almost every way, left Rome better than he found it. The infrastructure improved, the treasury was full, the empire was stable. The Roman historian Tacitus said that he was the only man who improved himself on becoming emperor. Although Vespasian had only reigned for ten years, the succession was clear. On his death, Titus slotted easily into the role which he had known would be his. He already had most of the required powers. There was no civil war, no fighting, no discussion, no disagreement. 
The Senate, the army and the people expected the younger Titus Flavius Vespasianus to become emperor, and he did. He immediately asked the Senate to have his father declared a god. When Vespasian had been emperor, there was some fear that Titus would end up being a bad ruler, because he was thought to be harsher than his father. When they were together trying to persuade somebody to do something, Vespasian would generally be nice and Titus would be nasty. Sometimes he had to execute or banish enemies. He got his hands quite dirty when he was Praetorian prefect because he kept his father's hands clean. Because of these things, Titus was not especially popular and his relationship with the eastern queen Berenice caused a scandal. Titus had been married twice, but during Vespasian's reign he lived openly in the palace with Berenice. When the arrangement led to severe criticism, even mutterings about a new Cleopatra, Titus sent her away. By the time he became emperor, the scandal was over. In order to improve his popularity, he made much of his childhood friendship with Claudius's son Britannicus. He promoted a more liberal image. He abolished the charge of high treason and disbanded the informers he had relied upon when he was Praetorian prefect. On becoming emperor, Titus began immediately to rule wisely and well. He had no need to be the bad cop now and could be generous. It is said he tried to do something good for somebody every day of his reign. Once at dinner, when he realised he had not helped anyone that day, he said, Friends, I have wasted a day. Titus had only been on the throne for two months when one of the most famous events in early imperial Roman history happened. The volcano, Mount Vesuvius, went bang. This was a cataclysmic event for the Romans. Vesuvius stands today, tall and imposing, overlooking the Bay of Naples. It sits at the conjunction of the African and Eurasian tectonic plates and is a pressure valve for the seismic activity caused by the plates pushing against each other. This volcano has erupted some 50 times in the last 2,000 years, but the eruption of 79 AD was the largest and most destructive. Two Roman cities, Pompeii and Herculaneum, as well as many other smaller towns, were completely covered by the ash and lava. The cities were destroyed, buried and forgotten, until Pompeii was accidentally found in 1599. It was left unexcavated and unexplored at the time, but when Herculaneum was discovered in 1738 and Pompeii rediscovered in 1748, excavations began. Pompeii has now been mostly uncovered and is an amazing place to visit, as it is the most complete Roman town in the world. Visitors to Pompeii can get a real feel for what life was like for the inhabitants of a re- medium-sized Roman town. Vesuvius had briefly erupted in 64 AD, and there were many small earthquakes, but nobody was expecting the massive explosion in October 79. The eruption lasted two days. On the first, around lunchtime, a huge cloud of ash shot up into the sky, blocking out the sun and making it seem like night. Later on in the evening, on the mountain, it looked like small fires had broken out. But these were not just fires. Huge rivers of molten rock flowed down the great mountain at a very high speed. The people of many towns surrounding the volcano were terrified and tried to escape. A few managed to reach the sea in the Bay of Naples and escape on boats, but many thousands of people died. The surviving eyewitness accounts are few. Only a couple of letters written by the author and lawyer Pliny the Younger to the historian Tacitus survive. Pliny's uncle, Pliny the Elder, a famous naturalist and author, died in the eruption. He had been preparing to get closer to the mountain so he could get a better view of the spectacular pyrotechnics. 
Later in Titus's reign, there was another great fire in Rome and an outbreak of the plague. The fire was not nearly as bad as the great fire had been during Nero's reign, but it was still pretty destructive. One of the buildings which was destroyed was the Pantheon, built by Marcus Agrippa. The building was not immediately reconstructed, and Rome would have to wait until the greatest imperial builder of all, Hadrian, constructed a new Pantheon. Titus showed his generosity by helping the victims of all three tragedies and giving money for the rebuilding of Rome. He threw great games to celebrate the opening of the Flavian Amphitheatre. Like Pompeii, the amphitheatre, which we know as the Colosseum, is one of the most iconic of Roman remains. It stands today, incomplete but imposing, near the Roman Forum in the centre of Rome. It is still awe-inspiring and magnificent. Overlooking the Colosseum is the Arch of Titus, built by his brother Domitian to celebrate his successes in the Jewish revolt. After less than two years on the throne, Titus had proved the doubters wrong and was well on his way to becoming a much-loved emperor. In the summer of 81, he travelled to Vespasian's summer retreat. On the way, he caught an infection and, aged just 42, he died on the 13th of September 81. Titus had reigned for less than two years. The historian Cassius Dio later commented that he was much loved because he died at the height of his glory. Maybe if he had lasted a bit longer, he would have shown some negative traits. As it is, history records none. Titus's last words were, I have made but one mistake. Nobody knew then, and nobody knows now, what he meant. Next time, we'll cover the reign of one of Rome's most controversial emperors, Titus's younger brother, Domitian. We'll try and work out whether he was a megalomaniacal tyrant, or actually quite a good emperor. Until then, have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.